Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. I am not going to read that again. Lily read it for us, but keep it open because we, we will be referencing it throughout uh, our time together studying the Word this morning. We continue our series in the Eucharist, the sacred meal. We've been looking at the sacred meal in the Older Testament, in Genesis, in the Prophets, and we continue this morning in considering the sacred meal in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And Matthew gives us uh, many glimpses of that, but we see one here in the passage that is open before us, that we have read together, that is our text today. The sacred meal in the life and ministry of Jesus. I was born in the famous 1960s. The competitive space race was well underway between two Cold War adversaries, the Soviet Union and the United States. I remember when I was old enough, I think I was probably about five years old, perhaps had not even entered into uh, school yet. Um, my dad was doing some preschool preparation with me at home, and he was teaching me uh, basic uh, numbers in the alphabet and so on. We had one of those Fisher-Price magnetic, it was like a school board, but it was more of a play school board and, and the magnetic letters that would attach to it and so on. And it was at that time that he also shared with me a scrapbook that he had been preparing for me during that year that I was born. And he had cut out clippings, particularly everything to do with the moon and the space race and Neil Armstrong. And, and so I had this scrapbook of all of these newspaper clippings. And to this day, I regret that I still do not have that. I don't know. I can't even recall what along the way I did with it, um, how I lost it. But it was a, it was a pretty amazing gift and so the space race was on. Revolution was in the air. Protests, especially among young people, were the order of the day. Young Americans protested against the Vietnam War. Students in Paris told factory workers that they had nothing to lose but their chains. And the factory workers mostly ignored them. Student and youth protests, feminist movements, protests against racial discrimination, protests by community associations against urban redevelopment schemes, and, and protests against attacks on the environment. All of these things imparted a new and more clamorous tone even to Canadian politics. In retrospect, a generation later, it seems as though what, what was really going on was not so much that there were lots of things wrong with the system, though there were some definitely things wrong with the system, and there always are things wrong with the system. 
But what was really going on were these signs that a new generation that had grown up after the Second World War, those years from 1939 to 1945, a new generation was no longer happy to be told by its parents to behave in the old ways. It was a time to make everything different. Bob Dylan, one of my favorite poets and prophets from that era, summed it up. You remember the song, perhaps. The times, they are a-changing, he sang. And for many, it really felt like that. However much we may look back now and smile to see how little really did change. Jesus, here in our text, is essentially saying the same thing. The times were changing. And He really meant it. And they really were. That was His answer to the questions and to the criticisms that bubbled up. Not surprisingly, when His movement didn't look like what people expected a kingdom movement to look like. A Messiah movement to look like. This passage and the, the surrounding uh, passages of our text today it is full of questions to which Jesus' answer was because everything is different now. Everything is different now. For instance, as we will consider Further, in a few moments, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners and scoundrels? Because while other religious leaders of the day saw their task as being to keep themselves in quarantine away from possible sources of moral and spiritual infection, Jesus saw himself as a doctor who'd come to heal the sick. There's no point in a doctor staying in quarantine. He'll never do his job. So we, we see this revolutionary kind of thing taking place here. For Christ followers... The most important thing to note about Jesus is that He is not simply one more in a long line of prophets and teachers. He's not merely like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses or David. A good man who represents God. Rather, Jesus consistently speaks and acts in the very person of God. So indeed, things were changing. Jesus is like a portrait for us of Yahweh. 
in all of its richness and complexity and majesty. Yahweh sprung to life in living color. Jesus, when He claims interpretive authority over the Torah, when He forgives the sins of the paralyzed man, when He calls His disciples to love Him above mother and father, indeed above their very lives, when He cleanses the temple, Jesus says and does all of these things that only Yahweh could legitimately say and do. In its later creeds and teachings, the church expressed this biblical conviction Speaking of King Jesus as the incarnation of the Word of God. God become human as God from God, light from light, true God from true God. The Nicene Creed. Now, we've been considering together in these days that one of the principal desires of Yahweh was to reestablish the sacred meal. To restore the community and fellowship lost through sin. This was one of the revolutionary acts that Jesus was carrying out. And of course, it was causing question and criticism from the religious leaders. So it should be no surprise that Jesus would make the sacred meal central to His messianic work. Throughout His public ministry, Jesus gathered people around a table of fellowship. In the Palestine of Jesus' time, the table was a place where the divisions and the stratifications, the various levels and strata of the society, were particularly on display. But at Jesus' table, all were welcome. Saints and sinners, the just and the unjust, the healthy and the sick, Men and women and children. All were welcome. And this open table fellowship of Jesus was not simply a challenge to the societal status quo, but it was also an expression of God's deepest intentions in terms of the human race. The realization of Isaiah's eschatological dream which we've looked at of the new creation age culminating in Christ that we looked at last week. In fact, very often Jesus' most profound teachings took place at a table. Calling to mind again Isaiah's holy mountain where a festive meal would be spread out and where instruction would go forth. 
Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, and Isaiah 25, which we've looked at already together. I want to invite you this morning to examine with me just a few instances of this meal fellowship discipleship that occurred in the New Testament, beginning in perhaps a surprising place, the Christmas story. Now, we're in the season of Lent and moving toward Easter. This isn't Christmas time. But consider, nonetheless, with me the story of Christmas, the account of Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Luke is not an innocent tale that we tell to children. Instead, all of the drama and edginess of the story of Jesus are foreshadowed there. We're meant to take notice of the contrast between the figure mentioned at the outset of the narrative, Caesar, Augustus, and the character who is at the center of the story. We're meant to take notice of both of these characters in the story and how they contrast with one another. The character at the center of the story is, of course, Jesus. Caesar would have been the best-fed person in the ancient world. Able at the snap of his fingers to have all of his sensual desires met. But the true king, the true emperor of the world, is born in an animal shelter outside of an obscure, forgotten town on the edge of Caesar's domain. Too weak to even raise his head, he is wrapped in swaddling cloths and then laid, as we are so familiar with, in a manger, the place where animals eat. What Luke, in Luke 2, is signaling for us here is that Jesus had come to be food for the hungry. Whereas Caesar, in the manner of Eve and Adam, existed to be fed. Jesus existed to be fed upon. He was destined to be not only the host at the sacred banquet, but how, and how like Babette's feast here again, which we looked at in our first week together, Jesus was to be the meal itself. And then, of course, to Christ's manger, to this feeding trough where he was laid, came the shepherds. The shepherds are evocative of the poor and the marginalized, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the kings came, the magi, evocative of the nations of the world, drawn there as though by a magnet. And thus commenced the realization of Isaiah's vision. 
a story that can be found in all three of the synoptic Gospels. And it's the story we've looked at this morning already. The conversion of Levi or of Matthew, the tax collector. We hear that as Jesus was passing by, he spotted Matthew at his tax collector's post. Now, to be a tax collector in Jesus' time, a Jew collaborating with the Roman occupying power in the oppression of one's own people, to be a tax collector was to be a contemptible figure. Someone akin to a French collaborator during the Nazi period. That's how a tax collector was looked upon by his or her fellow Israelites. Jesus gazes at this man and simply said, as we read together, follow me. Would you say that with me? Follow me. Did Jesus invite Matthew because the tax collector merited it? Was Jesus responding to a request from Matthew or some hidden longing in the sinner's heart that Jesus somehow picked up on? Certainly not. How many know grace, by definition, comes unbidden, uninvited, and without explanation? That's grace. In the artist Caravaggio's magnificent Baroque period painting of this scene, the calling of St. Matthew, and I think we have it up here. I don't know how clearly. It's a, it's a, it's a typical uh, uh, Caravaggio dark. There's, there's a lot of darkness and light that he uses in his artistic work. But if you can... Look at this with me for a moment. He depicts Matthew dressed anachronistically in a 16th century uh, uh, wardrobe of finery, responding to Jesus' summons by pointing. Matthew is the one in the, sitting in the center of the table here. And if you can see it, he's incredulously pointing to himself as if to say to Jesus, you want me to come? He wears this quizzical expression. Notice too that the hand of Christ, which you'll see over to your right here, the hand of Christ um, is pointing and Caravaggio depicts it in a, a way that it, he has adapted the hand of Adam in Michelangelo's. How many of you have seen Michelangelo's painting of the creation of Adam? And you see God's hand and Adam's hand, and they're touching at the fingertips. They, Caravaggio is drawn from that, and he, he has adapted the hand of Adam in Michelangelo's depiction of the creation of man on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. 
just as creation is ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created out of nothing, so conversion, new creation, a gracious remaking of a person from the non-being of sin. And Caravaggio signals all of this for us in this painting. God comes in grace. He bids Levi. He calls Matthew in grace and grace alone. And Matthew, we are told in the passage that we read together, immediately got up and followed the Lord. Follow me, Jesus said. Matthew immediately got up and followed. But where did he follow him? Watch this now. Where is the first place Matthew followed Jesus to? To a meal. Jesus sat, Matthew 9 and verse 10, Jesus sat in Matthew's home as a dinner guest it's the first thing we read after the declaration that Matthew followed him. Incidentally, part of our own coming to our senses, part of conversion to the mind that is in Christ Jesus, is the gift to rejoice when God sits down with persons we would have in hell. Matthew was someone that everyone wanted to see go to hell. That was the sentiment around Matthew and his like. Israelite collaborators with the occupying Roman powers against the people of Israel in tax collection. And as far as his... his, his Brothers and sisters were concerned to hell with Matthew. But here Jesus is saying, follow me. And then he goes, of all places, to Matthew's home. And sits in Matthew's home. And has a meal with Matthew. Before he calls Matthew, notice this, before he calls Matthew to do anything, before He sends him on a mission, Jesus invites him to recline in the easy fellowship around a meal table. Beloved, the deepest meaning of Christian discipleship, the deepest meaning of following Christ is not to work for Jesus, Though that is important. But the deepest meaning is to be with Jesus. To be with Him. To know Him in daughterhood and sonship. And from that flows our work for Him. Jesus invites Matthew to be with Him. To simply be with Him. 
The former tax collector listens to the incarnate Word become human. He laughs with Him. He breaks bread with Him. And in this, he finds his true identity. At a meal table, Adam was the friend of Yahweh before becoming, through his own fear and pride, Yahweh's enemy. Now Jesus, Yahweh made flesh, Yahweh become human, seeks to establish this lost friendship with Adam's descendants. And the Gospel then tells us that many others were also there. Many other disreputable sinners and tax collectors. Inspired, we presume, by Matthew's example. They were also dinner guests sitting with Jesus and His disciples in verse 10. This is but one example of how Jesus embodies the Isaiah vision of all nations of the world streaming to unity around Mount Zion. Christ Himself is the meeting of divinity and humanity. in His incarnation. And hence, He is the temple. The place of worship. And thus, it is around Him that the nations, all the peoples of the world, will gather and be fed. A wonderful feast, in Isaiah's words, a wonderful feast, a delicious banquet, with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. Loved ones, the same grace that summoned Matthew that day, now, through Matthew, summons the rest. And a community of sinners become diners and saints in the making is formed. There in Matthew's home, around a meal table. Now, naturally, this coming together stirs up the resentment of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who ask the disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? In verse 11, in our dysfunction, having lost contact with the God through whom all are one, we tend to order ourselves in exclusive, elite-like, and domineering ways. Determining the insiders precisely in contradistinction to the outsiders. And this is what we're seeing with the Pharisees. This is what we often see in ourselves. But this is just the kind of phony, self-destructive community that Jesus has come to interrupt and disturb. And so when Jesus heard the Pharisees' criticism, He responds 
Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then Jesus added, now go and learn the meaning of this Scripture. And He quotes from Hosea 6, verse 6. For I, or I want you to show love and mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Here we find a theme that will be developed throughout the tradition, namely the sacred meal as medicine for the sin-sick soul. In light of Jesus' observation, we can see that the inclusion of sinners is the very heart and purpose and reason for existence of the meal that He hosts. To include, not to exclude. The miracle of the feeding of the thousands with a few loaves and fishes. Another example, meal table example of Jesus. The miracle of the feeding of the thousands with a few loaves and fishes. I say the thousands rather than the feeding of the 5,000. We know that term. But the 5,000 really was only the men because they would count just the men. But there were also many women and children in that crowd that day as well. So there were more, much more than 5,000 people. At least twice that amount, but no doubt more than that. And the miracle of the feeding of these thousands with a few loaves and fishes, it must have haunted the imaginations. If, we, if you really consider it, it must have, have haunted their imaginations these early Christ-following communities. Because accounts of it can be found in all four Gospels. These narratives are richly iconic presentations of the same great theme of the sacred meal that we are studying here in this series. In Luke's version, crowds began to gather around Jesus when they heard that he had retired to Bethsaida. And moved with compassion, Jesus taught them, and he cured their sick. But as the day was drawing to a close, the disciples worried about what this enormous crowd would eat. And so, as Luke 9 verse 12 records, late in the afternoon, the twelve disciples came to Jesus and said, send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so that they can find food and lodging for the night. There's nothing to eat here in this remote place. The twelve, symbolic of the gathered tribes of Israel, act here in contradiction to their own deepest identity. Though they did not know that's what they were doing. 
They were acting in contradiction to their own deepest identity. For they want to scatter those who Jesus has drawn winsomely and magnetically to Himself. So Jesus challenges them. You are perhaps familiar with the story. You feed them, He says. But they protest. They push back. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Just enough for us twelve. Or are you expecting us, Jesus, to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? Are you expecting us to just march off and go do that? Somehow purchase food for this whole massive crowd? Knick-knack, paddywhack, give your dog a bone. Just like that. But Jesus, oblivious to their complaint, Jesus instructs them to gather the crowd in groups of 50 or so. And then taking the loaves and fish which they had, Jesus said a blessing over them. And He broke them and then gave them to the disciples for distribution. He blesses, He breaks them, and He gives them to the disciples to take and distribute. Everyone in the crowd of over 5,000, the Gospel records, ate until they were satisfied. And this is a wonderful exemplification of the Scriptures, of, in the Scriptures rather, of what we can call the loop of grace. The loop of grace God offers as a sheer grace. The gift of truly being. But if we try to cling to that gift and make it our own in the manner of Adam and Eve, we lose it. Beloved, the constant command of the Bible is this. What you have received as a gift, give as a gift. And you will find the original gift multiplied and enhanced. God's grace, precisely because it is grace, cannot be held onto and hoarded. Rather, it is had only in the measure that it remains grace. That is to say, it is had only in the measure that it is a gift given away. God's life, in a word, is had only in the rhythm and movement of His grace. And grace alone. One realizes this truth when one enters into the loop of that grace, giving away that which one is receiving. 
and finds that it continues to be multiplied and God continues to give in return. That's His grace because He cannot be outgiven. We find that in, even in our uh, one very familiar expression of our giving in uh, worship and in grace is in, is in our finance, in the giving of offerings and tithes and so on. We see how God as our source and supply, our grace, as we are in that loop of grace, He continues to give in return. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. In other words, that was the Gospel's way of saying in abundance, in overflowing, in multiplied fashion. The hungry people who gather around Jesus in this scene represent the hungry of humankind starving from the time of Adam and Eve for what will satisfy and in imitation of our first parents, we have all tried to fill up the void in our soul with wealth and pleasure and power and popularity and honor, the sheer love of control and domination. But none of it satisfies we still have that ache in our soul at the end of the day. Precisely because we have all been created by design for God. And God is nothing but love. And it is only when we conform ourselves to the way of love. Only when in ultimate paradox we lay down our lives and relinquish control and submit to Him and empty out the ego that then we are filled. And we see this in Matthew as he responds to Jesus' summons to come, not because he merited it, not because he earned it, not, not anything he had accomplished, he responds to grace. Because grace comes unsummoned. And he encounters love. And as he is being with love in Christ, he is transformed. He finds his identity. He knows fulfillment like he has never known before. So the five loaves and two fish signify that which has been given to us. All that we have received as a grace from God. Every one of us in this room today have been beneficiaries, are beneficiaries of God's grace. As you're sitting here among us today, you may not know Him personally 
at all. There, there, there may be no conscious relationship that you are, are sharing and seeking to grow in with Him. You are still a beneficiary of His grace. All that we have has been given to us, beloved, by Him. All that we have. Well, I earned this. I worked for this. I worked hard for this. You don't know how many years I worked hard for this. Now I'm retired and I'm enjoying all of this that I worked hard for and earned. Well, who gave you the strength and the ability and the breath that you breathe to get up every morning all of those years and do what you did? You see, you can't escape His grace. We are all beneficiaries of it. If we hold tight to all that we have received as a grace from God, if we hold tight to it, if we try to hoard it and keep it to ourselves, we lose it. But if we turn it over to Christ in return, then we will find it transfigured and multiplied, even unto the feeding of the world and the blessing of those around us. Are you seeing this? We see this happen in this story. At the outset of the story, the disciples refused to serve the crowd. No way, Jose. They refused to serve the crowd, preferring to send them away to the neighboring towns to fend for themselves. They had no concept of what could happen. And at the climax of the narrative, the disciples become themselves the very instruments and channels of God's nourishment, setting the loaves and fishes before the people. And within the loop of grace, they discovered their mission and were themselves enhanced and transfigured. And let's not miss this little detail at the end of the story. That the leftovers filled 12 baskets. And that has such huge eschatological overtones to it. Overtones that point to the coming of Christ to the return of the King, to the coming of His kingdom, to these last days that we live in even now, you and I. Such overtones. That is, we are meant to think once more of Isaiah's holy mountain to which the twelve tribes of Israel and through them all the tribes of the world 
all the peoples, all the ethnicities, all the nations of the world would be drawn. And all of these themes are summed up and drawn together and recapitulated in the meal that Jesus hosted the night before His death. And we'll take a closer look at that in particular, that particular meal, the next time we're together. Stay tuned.